Please be seated. Our reading this morning is from Luke 10, Luke chapter 10, starting at verse 25, which is on page 1042 of the Church Bible. The Parable of the Good Samaritan. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbour? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. One of the benefits of traveling around in different parts of the world and going to conferences, particularly the one that uh, Hannah and I went to in Kenya when we linked to with Wycliffe, was to pick up different perspectives. And a prayer that I picked up, uh, which I've often reflected on, I want to read to you now as we come to this sermon. And it is uh, very particular that I should read it to you. And before I do, just to give you the main reason from my perspective, and it's this, that I think in 34 years of being here that I've never preached a sermon on the Good Samaritan. That may be somewhat surprising. And the only reason I'm doing it now is it's part of a series that we're pursuing as we progress through Luke's Gospel. That might seem quite strange because it's a very familiar part of people's thinking and indeed the Bible. Here's the prayer. From cowardice that dare not face new truth, from laziness that is content with half truth, from arrogance that thinks it knows all the truth, good Lord, please deliver me. I think that is especially necessary when it comes to the familiarity of this parable. 
the parable of the Good Samaritan. But it comes under the big heading of the fear of commitment. Perhaps today it, the, uh, the best heading would be the fear of involvement. There is a subculture in Britain that lives on the basis, don't get involved. Don't get involved. Well, today's reading, I guess, is possibly um, the best-known parable. And for some people, the best-known part of the Bible. But may I say, along with that, and equally, one of the most misunderstood, the most misunderstood. So let's try to set the scene and get into this parable and not only what it says but what it means and how it applies to us uh, here today. Just to go back to the, the, the scene of the story. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho was notoriously dangerous. Indeed, um, some people called it the red road or the bloody way because of the casualties of merchants who were robbed and sometimes killed. It's a dangerous road uh, from Jerusalem. It is, as you know, Jerusalem is 2,300 feet above sea level. The Dead Sea is 1,300 feet below, and Jericho is near to the Dead Sea. So you appreciate the, the drop, the rough terrain, these crevices where robbers can hide and attack the um, merchants who were making their way. And that's what happened to this <coughs> Jewish merchant. So within less than 20 miles, the road dropped 3,600 feet. And a subheading could be, instead of being the good Samaritan, you could say um, that we should think about the foolish traveler. Is it a foolish thing to travel in this way? So, you can appreciate then that when Jesus told the story, he was telling them about the kind of thing that was constantly happening. It was in the news. It wasn't just a nice story. I want to give a little aside on this um, so that we get into a bit of the culture. If you've got your Bible, turn to Ecclesiastes 4. Here's an interesting verse that is often used for marriage or for relationships. I want us to see what the original writer intended. Look in Ecclesiastes 4, 9 to 12. Think of people who traveled often with companions. This Jewish merchant traveled on his own. Okay, that's what I'm interested in. Ecclesiastes 4 verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone, and especially when you're on a journey? No hotels um, en route from Jerusalem to Jericho. 
Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not easily broken, often used for marriage. But in reality, what it was, before the obsession of sexuality, two men would travel together, or more, and in the cold of the night would lie together to keep warm. Why do we have to bring sex and all this thing into everything? That's what it was like. That's the reference. And here is this um, Jewish merchant who is rather foolish. He's on his own. He's a loner. And he's going to pay uh, the price for it. So that's the context. Now let's look at something else here by way of uh, uh, um, introduction and then we'll move quickly. It poses this question then, was this man foolish? We can debate that. But it begins with a good question. Come back to the reading. Why did Jesus give the parable in the first place? On one occasion, verse 25, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. To test Jesus. So, he poses a good question, but with a bad motive. Uh, If one of the things less so these days, when I used to speak at schools and uh, particularly the fifth and sixth formers, when it came to open discussion, they used to love to ask uh, questions where you felt that their motive wasn't altogether sincere, certainly not to gain information, but to score points. Um, for example, the, the old chestnut is, um, who was Cain's wife? That's Somebody wants to be clever. One question was asked, and it's this. I wonder if, what, how you would reply. Did Noah have polar bears in the ark? Well, Martin Luther was asked um, uh, similar sort of questions because he's often in open debate. Um, and uh, somebody asked this question, what was God doing before he made the world? And Martin Luther quoted St. Augustine, who was asked the same question in his day, to which the reply was, making hell for people who ask questions like that. (laughs) Well, it doesn't help debate, does it? You can't go on from there. This chap is asking questions to expose, to test Jesus. And he got more than he bargained for. And if we come with a measure of sincerity today, then we likewise should be asking questions and be willing for answers. So, a good question from a bad motive. Jesus gives an answer. Now, notice carefully, and this is important in verses 28 and 29 before we get into the parable. Before we get into the parable. These questions and answers have taken place. He's quoted the law that to love your neighbor as yourself is the fulfillment of the law. Everything is summed up. Love God and your neighbor. Everything. Wonderful, comprehensive summary. But he's not happy with that. So he says, verse 29, he wanted to justify himself. And he said to Jesus, okay, who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? Then there's the parable. Okay? Then there's the parable. Who's my neighbor? The key to it then is this. 
he wants to justify himself. He wouldn't fall on the mercy of God. He wouldn't ask for grace and forgiveness. He wants to justify himself by what he does. And that's the big issue. It's the big issue among religious people and irreligious people. People who go to church and people who don't go to church. How can I be right with God? Can I do it myself? Is it DIY religion or is it by the grace of God? And that is a pivotal issue that opens the door to the whole challenge of the Good Samaritan, which I suggest to you is still much misunderstood. Okay, that's important then. And now, uh, just to say, if you go back to the original question in verse 25, it's, it's loaded in its, like this. Not what must I do for God, but what must God do for me. It's the inheritance. You don't earn an inheritance. You receive it, gratefully, I hope. And if you have received an inheritance, either from your parents or from a friend or a benefactor, how grateful you are. You didn't work for it. You didn't earn it. You may not even have deserved it, but you had it. How can I inherit? I can't work for it. I receive it by the grace of God. That is crucial to this parable. So let's look at two simple things. The first, practical love. And the second, personal love. Personal love. An inheritance is not about an achievement, whether it's religious or otherwise, or moral. It's about a relationship with God, by grace, through faith. So, practical love, the parable then. The parable unmasks for us immediately three dangers of self-justifying. Three dangers. The danger number one. I often hear people say this, and people say it, may I say, with great sincerity. And it's this. Well, I don't do anybody any harm. I haven't harmed anybody. The priest... And the Levite didn't harm anybody. But they didn't do any good, did they? That's the point that Jesus is getting at. If we think that we go through life saying, well, you know, I don't harm anybody. And that's my religion. It's a very poor one. And what this parable does is to unmask that, if you like, expose that thinking of self-justifying. You see, instead of Love your neighbor, which is practical and positive. It is, don't do anybody any harm, which is negative and passive. Sometimes the common book of prayer makes that distinction. Sins of omission and sins of commission. Sins I do and sins I don't do. Things I don't do wrong, if you like, that way. This is the attitude of two clergymen. Here they are. If you, if you think about how this parable unfolds, look at verse 31. Here it is. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he's living by his philosophy, I don't do anybody any harm. But I'm not doing anybody any good. 
And the same with the Levite. Same thing with the priest and the Levite. The sin of omission. It's not good enough. And, and the parable of the Good Samaritan exposes that. Secondly, it is this, uh, I'm as good as anybody else. When, if you want to justify yourself, that is a, the easiest thing in the world to do. Because it's not too difficult to find somebody of lesser morality or whatever than you. Not too difficult. But it's exposed to be weighed and found wanting. The third one is this, and this is particular. Many of us unintentionally perhaps live by this um, thinking, if you like, that charity begins at home. Charity begins at home. In other words, we consciously or otherwise set limits on the extent of God's love in our lives. When Jesus wants to drive this home to his disciples, he says it's not enough simply to believe the right things. I give you a command. A command isn't to believe, it's to obey. Love one another as I have loved you. By this will all people know that you are my disciples. If you have this love, what love? God's love. Sacrificial love. The love that is crucified and gives. Well, that's a tall order. That's what he's talking about. And it's a bridge too far. Charity begins at home. Who is my neighbor? That's easy. That's the let out clause. Who is my neighbor? The answer of the two professional churchmen is my fellow Jew. In fact, they would have believed in their day that if there was a, a Jew that was begging that they must never, even in the extremity of their need, take arms from a Samaritan because it is contaminated. Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, you can appreciate, the, if you look at the dictionary, the, the oxymoron, a Samaritan who's good, they are mutually exclusive. You see what Jesus is doing? It's, it's staggering, it's shocking, it's an offense to their thinking. Who is my neighbor? My fellow Jew. And I will love my neighbor if they love me back. If they invite me to the home, then I'll invite them back. If they give to me, well, I, I will give to them back. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. That's what it's like. Charity begins at home. We live like that. Or we say, no, I'll draw a circle around me and I'll give to my sect within my community. And there are examples of that uh, today. I don't think we can fully appreciate the, the, the emotional impact of verses 33 and 34. Let me read them to you. But, okay, the, the, the priest and the Levite have passed over on the other side. Uh, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, just the same, same eyes, same situation, he took pity on him, went to him, and bandaged his wounds, pouring in oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. That's, a, that's such an offense to these people. 
good Samaritan. They don't exist. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. It's a figure of speech. It's a contradiction in terms. How can you be a Samaritan and be good? The only good Samaritan was a dead Samaritan to Orthodox Jews. So it is socially and culturally a no way, a no-brainer. Now what Jesus is doing here is staggering. And little wonder he had great opposition as a result. It would be, I was trying to think, just try to bring this up to date with an illustration. It would be like, okay, if you've read the papers the last couple of weeks, having Abu Qadada as a, a police commissioner. That's what it would be like. Or worse. It's, it's, it's impact. So the priest and the Levite, two pillars of the religious establishment, are outclassed and exposed by this quote-unquote mongrel heretic. It's, it's really revolutionary. We've got to know it and we've clothed it with religious connotations. and uh, That's the impact of the Good Samaritan. You see, it's not enough to be orthodox. It's not enough to defend the faith. It's not enough to say, I believe these things. When the practice of it, when, when there are people whom we know and we cross over the other side and we live like that. Or where people are in need and we say, well, charity begins at home. It's not good enough. If you embrace Jesus Christ by grace. It is good enough if you don't. It's practical love. And secondly, and more quickly, personal love. Love is personal. It doesn't get more personal, does it? Love. You make love. It is a creative thing. So look at verse 36 and 37. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Well, you don't need to be an expert in the law, particularly religious. Which indeed? Notice his reply. He won't even name, he won't even use the word Samaritan. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Why didn't he call him a Samaritan? Such prejudice that prevails that often can make love to be something that is word only and nothing else. So picture the lawyer. He can't bring himself to say the word Samaritan. And Jesus' challenge comes with a searing conviction now as it did then. It is not good enough to be a fully paid-up evangelical or anything else unless you are prepared to have practical love because the thrust of this comes, the killer punch, right at the very end. Jesus told him the final little sentence, go and do likewise. He didn't say go and believe. He didn't say go and say, 
go and try harder. No, no. Go and do it. Go and do it. So we could add a little to this. We are to love and go. We are to love and do. That's what it's about. The two imperatives. Not to earn my salvation, but to express my salvation. And in our society, never was there a time when there was a need for the expression of it in terms of our neighbors, whoever's in need, whoever the Lord brings across our paths. Not what I must do for God to justify myself, but what God must do for me and through me so that it is demonstrated that I'm his child. Fear of commitment. Don't get involved. You're as good as anybody else. Charity begins at home. Don't do anybody any harm. That is a very poor philosophy. At best, it's passive. Jesus says the Samaritan is good. Another thing, of course, that comes out here is it's also long-term. It's not a one-off thing. You notice that he says to the innkeeper, the innkeeper uh, is accountable in this sense. He says, look after him. Here's some money. I'm coming back. And if I owe you any more, you tell me. Give me the bill. You see what he's doing? He's not just putting something, giving something to the church and feeling better. He's giving something and he's involving himself. I know some people who are Samaritans. And they are good counsellors. And people phone them in desperate need. Sometimes in the early hours of the morning. Samaritans are good. A good question. But for sure a better answer. And an alternative way. And in the prevailing needs in which we find ourselves here. Much less out there. We should not cross over on the other side. We should consciously choose to get involved. Or we consciously say, as I've done in many situations, I am now vulnerable. I am now choosing to be emotionally vulnerable. People are going to take advantage of me. That's a choice. Or what would Jesus want us to do? So... Who is my neighbor? Anyone whom the Lord in his grace and wisdom brings into contact with me. And I take Jesus' words seriously. Go and do likewise. Well, it's a, a provocative parable. Perhaps with a different perspective and, and a, a unique application for us here today. I hope that it is a word in season and that we will go in love and do in love.
and trust God for the outcome. And how particular is that when we come to the Lord's table as we will in a moment. Before we do, we're going to sing.